This talk tonight is on the perils and the promise of practice. I, about a few weeks ago, stumbled upon a book called Holy Cow, an Indian Adventure by an Australian writer named Sarah MacDonald. And it's the story of her going to live in India and um, against her will, basically. She, she was following, I think her boyfriend was there. And it's just the multiple adventures that she has, one of which is of a Pasana retreat. And um, she knows that she has some longing for spiritual, some kind of spiritual quest or, or journey, but she doesn't really know how to go about it. So I'm going to read some of her stories from being on her retreat, since um, I think you may be able to relate. The first thing she said was, I decided to start my quest for inner peace with a brain enema. <laughs> Then she talks about heading off to this Vipassana center to practice, which was a Goenka center, for those of you who are familiar. On the, train, on the train, I had nightmares of the horrors of being alone inside my own head. I saw my mouth bursting forth with forbidden words and my body gripped in a straitjacket surrounded by white coats. My friends' laughs and warnings echoed in my head. Few think I'll make it. Few of my friends think I'll make it. And one even offered me a case of beer for every day I survive. So she goes off and she has the adventure, and you'll hear about it a bit as I talk this evening. So she came, and she came for a reason, even though she was very nervous, as some of you were when you showed up here. But um, she knew that there was something deeper motivating her, and for all of us, there is something deeper, that motes, that something that motivates here, that, us, that gets us here. And this is a very important piece of our practice. It's about the motivation, why we're here. And we've asked you a little bit to reflect on this motivation, but it's, the, it's sort of the central piece around which everything turns. One of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, says, and this is not his quote, but it's a quote from Tibetan teachers that he loves, and he loves to say it quite frequently. He says, everything rests on the tip of motivation. So everything that we do, what's so important is why we do it, what's behind it. And one of the ways that I find useful in practice is in the morning when I sit, The first thing I do, whether I'm on a retreat, I might do it for a long time when I'm on retreat, but when I'm at home in my daily practice, is to really ask myself, why am I sitting today? What's this about? And be really honest with myself. Sometimes it's because I think I should, or because I heard, because there's multiple reasons why you might be sitting that day. But when you come to the retreat, why did you come to this retreat? What's here for you? What do you think you're going to get out of? And then I also think it's useful to think about a larger perspective. If it, if it makes sense to you, can this practice be put in the context of the world? May my, what I often do is I say, may this practice may be for the benefit of all beings. May I do this practice in the spirit of the awakening of my own self and the awakening of everyone and everything on this planet. 
So I just want to kind of remind you of this and, and offer this as a practice, as a possibility for your own practice. It also becomes something that's really helpful to go back to when you're caught in hindrances or difficulties during practice. The fact is, we will, and all of you, have been experiencing hard times on this retreat. It's very rare that you come to a retreat and everything is perfect. In fact, I haven't yet met anyone that has had that experience. Um, So the question is not about trying to create perfect situation for ourselves to practice in, but learning how to be with whatever comes up. And we've started to talk a bit about what we call the five hindrances to practice or the five difficult energies. It's another way of looking at it. And I'll just touch on them briefly because I think it's helpful to name them. So when when you experience them in your practice, you can say, oh, there's that thing Diana was talking about last night. So we, the five uh, difficult energies, hindrances, difficulties in practice, they're uh, wanting or sensual desire, aversion, hating the experience, or hating something hating in general, sleepiness, which we've talked quite a bit about, restlessness, which we've talked also quite a bit about, and, um, and doubt, So I'll just touch a little bit on the ones we haven't mentioned so much. The hindrance of greed or wanting mind or sensual desire can be be quite rough when it comes and visits you. They're really, they're visitors. You know, I I want to impress upon you that there are mind states that come and go and they visit us. Because we are just sitting here with not much to do, and we get visitors. And so you might get visited with fantasies, with wanting something, with having a desire for the meal, for for having a desire for the next bite, for a person who's on the retreat, for a person you're imagining, for a person you're imagining from 20 years ago in your life, for... A, I mean, any version of desire for something in, your, in the present, the future, or the past is this emergence of desire as a, as a hindrance. And the reason it's a hindrance is, it beca- is because it prevents us from being in the present moment. You know, it takes us out of our experience into some sort of wanting, needing, needing things to be different than they are. It can be very subtle. It can just be in the form like, oh, I want this sitting to be as good as my last sitting. Or I want, um, I once had a really good sitting. I think it was 2001. Maybe it could be that good. So it's just, it's this mind kind of continually leaning forward and grasping after something, thinking it's going to get happiness through that thing. And according to these teachings that we offer, according to the Buddha, This is the source of suffering. And you don't have to listen to me. You can figure it out yourself. And you've had that experience. You're meditating and you're thinking and you're wanting something. You want it so badly and you just don't have it. And you're suffering. So when when sensuous desire, wanting, greed comes into the mind and sort of feels like it hijacks your practice or takes over, 
then it's really, it's a great idea just to know that this is happening. Greed is present in the mind. And um, you can feel it. Like go into the body. We've been encouraging you to really feel things in the body. What does it feel like? When you feel that longing feeling, sometimes it can be like a, an aching in the chest or in the gut. So really feeling in the body. And then reminding yourself of the impermanent nature of whatever is passing. Things are, things are whatever you're wanting. Things are coming and going. And you really don't have control over life as we think we do. And then, as I said, reflecting on the motivation, the motivation for being here. That can be helpful. Then it reminds me, okay, I'm going to drop the fantasy and come back into the breath. As boring as it may be, I'll come back to the breath. Another one is doubt. And you've probably all experienced this, especially if it's your first retreat. Am I doing this right? I don't know if I'm doing this right. This is weird. What are they talking about? Do these teachers know anything at all? This is crazy. Did the Buddha know anything? Who knew? You know, I mean, you can have endless, endless mind spin-outs of doubt. And um, it's a rough one when we're caught in this kind of a hindrance, this difficult energy, because that feels like a real hijack of practice. And the worst part is you believe it, okay? So this thought may come through the mind, and it feels like it's real. And it just it's so convincing. I mean, doubt is very, very convincing. I think it's time to go. Why did I ever come? I had, you know, I could have gone to um, some, I could have gone on a vacation. Why did I, why am I spending my time here? So I really encourage, part of the trick of working with doubt is knowing that it's doubt. So sometimes you may not even realize it till a few hours later or even the next day. Oh, I was having a doubt attack. So just noticing it, feeling it, feeling the confusion in the body, in the mind. And, um, and really, again, returning to the motivation. Why am I here? Reminding yourself that you came here for a reason. Because there is this inner wisdom inside each of us. And it's important to... Um, well, let's say part of what we're doing here is we're cultivating that inner wisdom. We're allowing it to develop. And doubt is, it's a bit of a haze over our own inner wisdom. So when you recognize it, just knowing it and trying to come back to what you're doing. I'm not going to talk about sleepiness and restlessness, but I will talk a little bit more about aversion because it has all sorts of forms and it can be really rough and painful. So aversion, you've all, we've talked about it a little bit, but it's hating the experience. Aversion is just, it's hating it. And it has many, many forms. It can come as grief, as fear, as resistance, as anger, as hating, you know, as, I mean, it could be any form of sort of dislike, of pushing away. It can be towards the food, it can be towards the meditation, it can be towards your body, the pain, it can be towards the person next to you. We sometimes talk about um, what we call Vipassana vendettas. They're the person that you secretly, is driving you nuts. (laughs) The way they cough, the way they wear their, their blanket, whatever. I mean, it's it's completely irrational and there's no basis whatsoever in reality and yet we 
we just, our mind creates aversion. And the opposite, of course, is the Vipassana romance, who is the person that you're secretly in love with here, knowing nothing about the person, never having talked to them, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Both of these are just kind of tricks of the mind. They're, they can be either pleasant or unpleasant, depending on your mood. And, um, and they're, they're part of the way that aversion and then, or greed operates in the mind. So, so again, when we're, when we're feeling averse to things, sometimes it can feel like there are layers and layers of aversion, like hating the experience, hating the fact that you hate it, judging yourself for hating it, judging the fact that you're hating, that you're judging, that you're hating it. You know, I mean, this is what our minds are like, right? And if you can bring your attention to some of these layers of aversion, it's almost like we begin to unpack them. You know, like they're layers of cloth. And we take off the first one, hating the hating the hating. Okay, that's off. Now I'm just hating the hating. Okay, now I'm hating. Oh, now I'm hating. Oh, okay. Oh, actually I'm hating. (sighs) What does it feel like in the body? Oh, okay, being with it. Can I be with the hating? It's just hating. You know, it's not, it's not the end of the world. We all have these experiences of dislike. One of the ways it manifests really strongly for us, um, particularly in this culture, is around, uh, is around self-hatred. You know, so the hating may be outer-directed, but it also may be inner-directed. So many of us can be feeling that, oh, I'm doing such a bad job. So it's a kind of a combination of doubt and aversion. I'm doing a horrible job. I'm, this is awful. I look, I'm, I'm the worst meditator. What am I doing here? I hate myself. It may, ha- it may be judgment of yourself about things that have happened a few weeks ago, six months ago, ten years ago. I mean, we just, we just ah, it's, <laughs> it's an issue. And I think that, we, that because of this, particularly American culture in this time, um, there's so much judgmentalness that we all internalize. And whether it comes from our families or whether it comes from the culture itself telling us we're supposed to look a certain way and act a certain way and make a certain amount of money and have the right car and do the right, you know, and, and it's, it's really painful you know, it's so painful the way it just lives with us. And some of you have even commented that you've just been astounded by the number of judgments that have arisen in your mind as you're practicing. You didn't even know it was there. Here's what uh, Sarah said. I've heard the Dalai Lama warn that too many Westerners come out of meditation retreats thinking they are the Buddha. (laughs) My self-image is not that good. I think I'm Sally Field in Sybil with a major multiple personality disorder. <laughs> Conducting my own psychotherapy, I half ho- hope for repressed childhood memories. All I come up with are ABBA and KISS songs. <laughs> Later on, she says, I feel like I'm trapped in a TV episode of Survivor Spiritualists. <laughs> the, the last one gets enlightenment. <laughs> So I just want to encourage you that when these voices are coming up, and if they're coming up, first of all, they're in some ways, unfortunately, just a natural 
natural may not be the best word, a conditioned, a habitualized part of our, our, the way our minds function. And just, okay, there's self-judgment. Oh, there's self-judgment again. There's self-judgment number two. There's self-judgment number six. There's self-judgment number 50. You know, it's only 10 o'clock in the morning. It, it, it's, a, it's a continual, um, it, it may be, and not for everybody, but it can feel like a continual sort of barrage toward, at ourselves. And so learning to see these thoughts as thoughts that the, and to disidentify, to not take them to be me or mine, that they're really simply thoughts arising and passing, that they're, not, they're, they're, just, they're just a thought. They're not really any different than, God, it's cold out, or what's the... Di- I mean, there's a, there's a charge, there's an emotional charge to... I'm a bad meditator compared to it's cold today. But they're really, it's thoughts. And my friend had this great experience on a retreat a few years ago. She was meditating and she was going through major attack of self-doubt and self-judgment. It was just completely miserable and she would just start judging herself and judging herself. And she was meditating quite a bit outside at this, at this um, meditation center on the East Coast. And it had, there were lots of chipmunks. And the chipmunks would come, come up to the people who were meditating quite a bit. But for some reason, that one day, no chipmunk was coming up to her. <laughs> so her voice said, inside said, I'm a terrible meditator. Even the chipmunks hate me. <laughs> And so that day, she went in to see her teacher, and she was crying, and she was saying, oh, I'm so horrible, I can't do this, I'm a terrible meditator, even the chipmunks hate me. (laughs) And he looked at her and he said, even the chipmunks hate me, the sky is blue. And in that moment, she saw that it it was thoughts it was a thought arising that she didn't have to take so personally and glom onto and identify with as me or mine. And in that moment, there was freedom. So when you're feeling, if you have the experience of judging mind, you can work with it, as I was just saying, maybe counting it. Sometimes that brings a little lightness to it or even adding a phrase if there's a particularly recurring one. Um, this can work with really any kind of recurring thought. Also, feeling into the body when you're judging. What am I? What's going on? Oh, there's some pain. There's some burning. There's some clenching, and just being with it. And I think the most important thing is: can we give? Can we find a way amidst these voices, amidst this aversion, this hindrance of aversion? to give ourselves some kindness and compassion. I mean, we rarely give ourselves a break. Isn't it amazing? I think if we treated ourselves, um, if we treated other people as badly as we treat ourselves, they would never talk to us, (laughs) right? But instead, you know, it's perfectly okay to say, you're stupid, you're ugly, you're fat, you're all day. The practice that Eugene introduced more today of metta, of loving kindness, is incredibly helpful for working with self-judgment. It's just, it's, for me, it's kind of like a balm to the judging mind. 
So in one sense, if you're having aversion in any form, metta is great. Uh, metta for the person you're angry at. Metta for yourself. Uh, if you're feeling, mm, if you're having a lot of this self-judgment, you can begin to send yourself loving kindness and see what happens. I once did a, I had spent um, a number of years working in a, in a nonprofit and I was just completely burned out and exhausted and a political nonprofit. And um, I came on retreat after that and I did a month of loving kindness practice and I did the entire thing towards myself. I just kept bathing myself in love and kindness and care. And I'll tell you, it was the most, I don't know, it was the best thing I could possibly have done for myself. It was like it, it just, it, it, it kind of healed the wounds. You know, it, it was like a balm for the soul, for the being. So enough about what makes it hard. Let's talk about what makes it good. So that was the perils part. And now we're going to get into the promise part. What are we doing here? Has anyone wondered that? (laughs) What's going to happen? What's this about? One of the things we're doing here is we're doing... In, in a practice called insight meditation. And that's the translation we use for the word vipassana. And it's also translated as looking clearly or seeing clearly. So in a sense, it's coming here, getting rid of all the distractions of the world, putting everything away, and being with what's here, which is really your body and mind and heart. And so we come here to calm and concentrate the mind and bring a sense of, bring some clarity and peace. And with this calm and concentrated mind, we can look closely and see clearly what is happening in our experience. And it's just so ironic because it's really, it's so simple. It's just that we never really think to do it because we're quite busy or preoccupied. And as, this, as we do this process of concentrating, calming, clearing the mind, we've talked quite a bit about the arising of insight. Insight will come, does come, as the, you know, uh, Huxley used to, Aldous Huxley used to refer to it, the doors of perception are getting cleansed. So as these doors of perception are cleansed, then there is a spontaneous arising and bubbling up of insight. Uh, And sometimes it's a spontaneous arising and bubbling up of compassion or kindness. And so it's really important to distinguish insight from knowledge. So it's not the kind of knowledge that you get from reading a book or from someone telling you something. It's actually not the kind of knowledge that comes from Uh, figuring it out. So the practice is really not about trying to manipulate your experience and make it be a certain way in order that you can get insight. And I'll tell you, I mean, this is is sort of embarrassing, but I've had experiences on retreats where I have, um, I've had an insight while, let's say I was standing somewhere. 
And then I've actually, a day later, gone back to that site and seen if it would come back again. <laughs> and this is called manipulating your experience. <laughs> this is called not trusting in what, what Eugene referred to as the Dharma doing itself. That there's actually a, something going on underneath that's a very mysterious process. And part of our work simply is to show up, to just be there, to sit and to walk and to eat and to sleep and to, um, to, be, to show up for each present moment. And then the insight that is not the knowledge, it's not the constructed, manipulative, so cognitive of a kind of knowledge. It's a much more inner knowledge arising, coming through you. And I really see it as us accessing our own inner wisdom. That through the support of the retreat and a little pointing in various directions, you come in contact with the part of you that, again, the part of you that's obscured, which is your inner wisdom. Some people think of it as their intuition. Some people think of it as a connection with something greater than themselves. But this happens through the practice, and it's very wonderful. And yet I say that, and I'm thinking, uh-oh, now they're all going to start. I wonder when the insight's coming. So, so just relax, because the thing is you can't make it happen. And the insights, I want to say the insights could be anything, really anything. And I'll give you an example of some of Sarah's insights. It's a boring technique. There's no mantra to focus on, white light to receive, or God to picture. We're just told to observe our breath all damn day. <laughs> Apparently, we need to learn to concentrate and to focus the mind so we can realize subtle truths. But my realizations for the first day are hardly subtle. They are, one, my nostrils breathe differently. Most of the time, my right nostril takes in air on a sideways angle, while the left... <laughs> sucks in air directly below it. (laughs) Two, I always need to have a song in my head, and they are rarely good ones. (laughs) Today's major tune is Breathe by Kylie Minogue. It's very boring when you only know the chorus and can't do any Kylie dance moves. (laughs) Three, I'm impatient. Four, Wonderland is Within. I'm hyperactive and insane. One thought leads to something ridiculously unrelated and never comes back to the first. My thoughts don't make sense or come to any conclusion or insights. And there's rarely one thought at once. There are layers of boring, repetitive, crazed snippets. I'm regurgitating memories, plans, information, music, movies, friends episodes, highlights, daydreams. It's mayhem in there. As we practice, the kinds of things that will come forth may be psychological insights. You might have some insight into your past history or into your present, into what's going on in your life in the present. Those come. There, um, you might notice something about your family, about the, the way that you are resistant to things or about how you've never really experienced pleasantness in your life and you always push it away and when you're starting to feel maybe a little bit of pleasantness as you practice you're completely unfamiliar with it don't even know what it is psychological insights 
there might be insights about how to do the practice. So this, these are really great insights. Someone today was talking about how they were having all this body pain and then they accidentally found themselves in a certain pose and the body pain went away and they realized, oh, that's what I can do. And so that was a great insight into how the practice works. Simple but extremely helpful, as I'm sure you can imagine. We might have insights into the way our mind works. Okay, I'll talk more specifically about that, but one example might be that, for instance, you see that when things are unpleasant, your mind wants to push them away. So the second you feel discomfort, you want to get away from it. Or, um, but then you might notice that unpleasantness happening all over the place. You actually like can feel, we talk about it in the Buddhist teachings, that you notice this sense of um, of of unpleasant feeling. There's some contact with something unpleasant and then your mind reacts with aversion. So it could be something you see, something you hear, something you taste, feel, smell, touch, anything. And then sometimes the insights that you might encounter might be about the way, the, uh, what we call classical insights, sort of the traditional insights that, that are talked about in some of the Pali, the, the Buddhist texts, like the insight of impermanence. That you can really see for yourself this incredible changing nature of things, that nothing stays the same from moment to moment. And when you get these kinds of insights, like this insight and impermanence, it's not, oh yeah, things change, I know that. It's obvious things change, duh. That's not an insight. An insight is you're sitting there and you see it. It's like the mind has been has gotten clear and calm and concentrated and wieldy and suddenly it's so obvious to you that there is only the arising and passing away of phenomenon that it's all just coming and going, a kind of passing show, and there's just there's an observer and phenomenon. That might be an insight. The principle is that if you want to know yourself, you look inside yourself. How do you know what motivates you? How do you know what you care about? How do you know what you're fearful of? How do you know what you love? Well, you can guess. Someone could tell you. You can read about what humans generally think about these things. But the principle here is you go inside yourself and you find out. Again, very obvious, but not always so done in this world. One of the interesting things about practice is the way what happens here is a microcosm of what happens out there. So Eugene talked about the real world versus the retreat world, and one of my friends calls it the unreal world out there. That's the unreal world. This is the real world. (laughs) You can figure that out yourself. But what we see on retreat is that the experiences that we have show us, they give us kind of a lens into how we operate in the world in a larger way, how we internally operate ourselves in relationship and to the greater social world. 
So an example of this might be you're sitting with pain and you notice that you're a person that the second you feel pain, this voice kind of comes in and says, I can do it. And you just get really rigid and strong and, and, and this whole this quality comes into your body and mind. And then you might think, then you might realize, wait a minute, that's what I always do with pain in my life. I'm rarely sort of receptive and welcoming of it. I always have to plow through it. How interesting about the way my mind works. Or you might notice the way you like to control things. So I had a retreat a few years ago where, um, again, this is at this retreat center, IMS in Massachusetts, where uh, the weather in the, in the fall is really changeable. So one day it'll be really hot and the next day it'll be cold. And so I used to have all these plans about what jackets to take with me and what sweaters and hats and coats. And I would, I would spend a good portion of my sitting before the walking meditation trying to figure out just the perfect kind of hat and coat and everything. So you, you can imagine I wasn't doing a huge amount of meditating. I was doing a lot of planning. So I would go out, um, and then I would go outside, and I would have all these layers on because I figured out if I have layers, I can't lose. So I would do a little bit of walking, and the sun would come out, and I'd say, oh, take off my hat. And then I'd walk a little bit. Oh, it's getting cold. Put my hat back on. Getting Walking, walking. Oh, it's getting hot. Maybe I'll just unzip the jacket. Oh, it's getting cold. And I would spend just hours trying to manipulate and get the perfect experience. You know, get the temperature to be exactly right. It's impossible. You know, it's such. I think weather is such a great thing. You know, the weathermen can never, ever predict. They're always wrong, right? And, um, and we try, we really want to control, control the environment. And I began to see that, one, I was spending quite a bit of time doing this, but I didn't really have control over what was happening. I thought I did, and I thought that I could have the perfect gear and that then I would be warm and safe and happy. And when I realized this in that moment outside doing walking meditation, I realized, wow, I do this a lot in my life. I try to set things up in my life so that I will be able to control it. So I try to control in my relationships or in my friendships or in my, uh, in my job. Like that aspect of control, it's there too. And how interesting to see it here. And the reason it's interesting to see it here is because here we can work with it. You know, here we have this, this situation, we're really not bothering anybody. We just have ourselves to work on, uh, if we want to, work on something that arises. So, and when I say work on it, I don't mean to kind of actively pursue any kind of uh, self-improvement path or something. All I'm talking about is if I, what I began to learn in that day with the coats was, why don't I just be with the coats you know, be, I'm sorry, be with the weather. Like, let the weather change and let my mind say, okay, cold, hot, cold, hot. Oh, I don't need to change it. It's just the weather changing. I don't need to change my life. I can just be with it, that it's actually okay. And this has made a difference. This has made a difference in my life. 
Another example has been, um, I was once meditating, this is, I think the weather is inspiring all this cold, <laughs> cold weather stories. So I was also meditating in the winter at uh, this, this retreat center, and I was given a room in the basement. And so just to say that this story is going to show you even, even sort of the greater ramifications for the way insight into ourselves can help us illuminate, in a sense, the world. I was meditating, I was, I was living in this basement room, and they had given me a space heater, and it wasn't that cold, but I was convinced I was going to be cold. I mean, it seemed logical to me, it's freezing outside, sometimes it's snowing, I'm going to be cold. So I went and I got a whole bunch of blankets, and I put them in my room, and I just left them there. And it got colder, and it got colder, and the space heater was warm enough. But those blankets seemed really important to me. <laughs> and um, one day there was a note on the board, and it said, it said, if you have any extra blankets, please return them. <laughs> Other people are cold. <laughs> and, I, um, and I looked at that, and I thought, oh, well, that doesn't really apply to me. And then the next day, the note was still there. And then the teachers made an announcement. (laughs) And I decided that it was really, you know, what if it got cold? What if I really, really got cold? I need those blankets. Those blankets are important to me. And so I kept those blankets there. (laughs) And I kept them there. And then you know, finally one day, it was like, okay, again, spontaneous arising of insight, not reflecting, worrying, thinking about it, but just the sense, suddenly I went, oh my God, I have been hoarding these blankets for a moment that doesn't even exist. It's never happened. I'm completely worried about this future that is, that is a made-up future. And meanwhile, in the present moment, other people are cold. <laughs> So I saw that, and I, it was really, it was, I just remember the feeling in my body, like, oh, yeah, okay. And it wasn't, I wasn't judgmental or mean towards myself. I was just like, oh, yeah, okay, this is interesting. See how the mind works. So I went up, and I, um, brought, the, I brought the blankets back. And in the act of bringing them back, in that act of generosity, it was almost like something opened up inside me, and what I could see was oh, you know, you poor thing, you really want to be safe. You want to be warm. You want to be held. And when I felt that, like this compassion arose for myself, but then I realized, wow, this is going on everywhere with everyone. And this is, I mean, this is the reason why people alarm their houses to, you know, this is the reason that we have tons and tons of of things that we accumulate. We have this need, humans need to feel safe and protected and out of harm and out of danger. And this is the reason there's an arms race. And this is, and it was like my mind just went vast. It went out into the whole into this whole issue, seeing it in the world. And it was a beautiful, beautiful moment for me of great compassion for myself and for the world. And, um, and it's really made me think about it since. 
my life since then, I really think about what I, what I think I need to be safe. We have the capacity to change. It's really interesting. So we have this insight, we have this experience. Sometimes, our, sometimes we're on the retreat and it feels like, oh, you know, it didn't seem like a lot happened. But there's an inner sense of something changing. What I like to say is that um, we change and we don't change. So how do we change? How does the insight change us? How, what is this promise of our spiritual path, of this practice? We change because what you practice will grow. It's the very, very basic understanding of karma in the Buddhist teachings. What, you, what your actions are, you will reap the results of. It's the basic idea that if you plant a fig seed, you'll get a fig tree. So if you practice mindfulness, mindfulness will be cultivated, will grow. If you practice kindness, kindness will grow. If you practice, I mean, you name it, it'll, it'll, what we practice will have results. The Buddha said, um, sometime, well, first I'll say a little bit, but sometimes it's not so obvious. So it just seems like it's one drop of, uh, one, like one moment of mindfulness in a whole hour of sitting, and it can feel really frustrating. But according to this teaching, the teaching of karma, that if we keep, let's imagine that we have a bucket and, it, and we drop a one drop of water in it, and then another, and then another, and then somewhere down the line we look in the bucket and it's full. So the Buddha said, with every drop of water, the water bucket fills. With every act of mindfulness, our mindfulness bucket gets stronger, gets more full. I've been so interested by all of these uh, reports coming out in different mainstream magazines, like in Time, or was it something was in the Washington Post recently, about the ability for us to change our minds, to, ch- to have a capacity for change. It's really, really interesting. So... The scientists for for some time, for a long time in neuroscience. And by the way, I'm not a big scientist person, so I'm going to say it in a very lay language, the way I understand it. Um, but science, scientists for a long time thought that after teenage or adolescent development, the brain really didn't change much. You were kind of locked into it. And then they discovered this thing called neuroplasticity, which means that. The, the circuits in our, in our brain continue to develop. And what they actually say is those that you practice or those that you cultivate will grow and those that you don't discard, get discarded. It's like pruning of a tree. And so it's really good news for um, people who are, who are you know, in their, getting on in years because the, if you practice things like if you do crossword puzzles, it's supposed to be really good for the mind. It keeps you alive and like, it keeps your mind very lively. Well, what the scientists are now seeing is that meditation really can contribute to the growth of, of certain um, beneficial brain waves. And let me see if I can get this right. To, hang on. 
I want to make sure I'm a little more scientific. Oops. There was a study done with this guy named um, Davidson here uh, at UC. I think it was at UCSF. Not quite sure, but anyway, Davidson concludes from the research that meditation not only changes the workings of the brain in the short term, but also quite possibly produces permanent changes. That finding, he said, is based on the fact that the monks, he studied monks who had been meditating for a long time, had considerably more gamma wave activity, which are the beneficial brain waves, than the control group even before they started meditating. What we found is that the trained mind or brain is physically different from the untrained mind. In time, he said, we'll all be better to understand the potential importance of this kind of mental training and increase the likelihood that it, meditation, will be taken seriously. So this is kind of the scientific uh, proof, if you were, and since science is so important in our culture now, which what we knew about meditation is now being really... Uh, proven by the scientists that it's good for you and that it can change your brain. It can really change your brain. If you practice mindfulness, it's going to change. It's going to, it's going to create new circuits, circuits of mindfulness, circuits of compassion, circuits of kindness. I think that's pretty amazing. And at the same time, um, we may be still uh, like, like the way we are, I know that after more than 15 years of meditating, I still have some of the same personality things. I still really like chocolate, and I still um, can be—I still like have the same sense of humor, and I still do. I well, I still get mad at my brother. I mean, it's amazing. I can be meditating. I can be in a place of great calm, and I can, he still makes me mad. <laughs> and he does it purposely. <laughs> He'll say things like, if you're such a good meditator, how come you get mad at me? <laughs> Which then makes me more mad. <laughs> and as Stephen Levine uh, once said, the reason why our, our family is so good at pushing our buttons is because they installed them. <laughs> So we, um, we can begin to, so we may still, as we practice, and though our mind changes and the circuits change, and the, we still can, um, we're still, in a sense, the same, but different, okay? But the relationship to who we are shifts. So years ago when my brother would make me mad, I'd be really upset that I got mad, and I'd feel like such an unspiritual person for getting mad. And um, now when I get mad, oh, oh, there's anger arising, aversion. That's interesting. Wow, that's a deeply conditioned pattern. It's really in there. Oh, okay. It's, it's, it's like there's less, pers- less taking it personally, less identification, less sense of me and my. And it's, it's honestly, it's a wonderful relief. You know, it's like through this practice, one begins to develop a fluidity, an ability to be through life with great openness and spaciousness and great equanimity. And equanimity is this wonderful quality of mind, this mind that is balanced, 
even-minded, unmoving in the face of all that it encounters. It's a mind that it's very sweet. So when you have a taste, and you may have a taste on this retreat of equanimity, it's like anything could be happening. Someone could be really, um, making, there could be very loud noise outside. But your mind could be quite relaxed, open, spacious. Ah, equanimous. Oh, there's loud noise. Oh, they ran out of, they ran out of uh, you know, something on the food line. Okay, they ran out. I can be with that. Oh, there's body pain. Wow, body pain. Hurting, pain, unpleasant, aversion, aversion. Ah, equanimity. Look, you know, I can be with things as they are. This is the promise of this practice. The prom- it's not about creating a mind that is, that is, I want to make sure I'm saying this right. There are changes that happen in our mind, as I was just explaining. But at the same time, what we're doing is we're developing a capacity to be with things as they are. This is the greatest gift. This is the thing that will transfer out. This is the thing that will help us when working with the hindrances. Can we be with things as they are? And this quality of mind, as it develops and grows and strengthens, is, well, it is in the moment, and it is, it is the mind of liberation. It is the mind of freedom. In each moment, when you can take a breath and just relax into things as you are, you are having a moment of freedom. When things don't need to be any different than they are, this is a moment of freedom. When you are, when you're sitting there and it's just like you're, you're feeling that breath as if it were the first breath ever and there's no clinging and there's no pushing away. This is a moment of freedom. And as this begins to develop, and over time in one's practice, there is this possibility of it being something that one can really inhabit and embody. And you all have tastes of it. It's possible now. It, it has been possible. It's always possible. I think the great promise of this practice is that each of us doing this work can have such an impact in a world that needs it so desperately in these times. And that if we, I think if we can, if we as individuals can learn this, this practice and bring it to our institutions and to the greater culture at large, we're going to see big changes. And it's, it's sort of up to us to become, I sometimes call it spiritual warriors or bodhisattvas of great compassion who can be there for this world in this time. And this, in a sense, I sometimes see it as a training ground for that work. And some of you are not drawn to that, and that's, that's fine. This is sort of, this is where I feel drawn with my practice. 
Sarah in our story here. Hang on. Sarah talks about the changes in herself after she leaves the retreat. At the bus stop in the town of Dharamsala, a beggar boy begins to hassle me. I stop, looking into his eyes, and then give him the dinner I've brought for the train trip. An old Tibetan monk watching starts clapping and laughing. The boy and I join in, clapping and laughing. An ordinary Indian begging transaction that normally makes me feel depressed and guilty has become a human and humane exchange of laughter and true compassion. Sure, I haven't saved his life, but it feels like a greater gift than money handed over out of guilt, anger, and resignation. I definitely feel like something inside has changed, and I'm ready to be reborn. So why don't we sit for a moment? Here's a poem for you. If in an autumn field a hundred flowers can untie their streamers, may I not also openly frolic as fearless as blame? This talk was given by Diana Winston at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on January 13, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.